Hi, my name is Grace Middleton, and we'll be talking about kids and horses, and this is my Uncle Cow's podcast, and in a couple episodes, my brother will be coming up. Perfect. Thank you, Grace. Grace is uh, my niece, as she said, and I am uh, talking to her today for an upcoming episode that will be about kids and horses, and I thought, well, while I have her here, with the microphones out, why don't I just have her help with the intro that I needed to do today? The podcast that you guys will be listening to today is my friend Roslyn Galbraith. And Roslyn has been a family friend of ours for a long time. And I wanted to give you guys a chance to listen to some of the things that she has to say. And uh, I wanted to read you the description that I wrote in case you haven't had a chance to read through that and you're listening to this. I know some of you read those and some of you maybe don't because you're going to listen to it anyway, but this kind of gives just a quick outline of a little bit of what Rosalind's been up to, so I wanted to go through that real quick. So if you've already read it, forgive me, and uh, it won't take that long. Title is, It's Been a Life, A Conversation with Seasoned Horsewoman Rosalind Galbraith. It was the early 90s. My husband had passed away. I was 51 years old. I was ready for an adventure on the other side of the world. In the 80s, I was a horsewoman selling bulls to cattlemen, and that's not an easy life. In the 70s, I owned and managed over 100 horses and a riding stable near Lake Michigan. In the 60s, I was on the road with my husband Alec Galbraith, who was an icon in the draft horse industry. In the 50s, I was working seven days a week at the riding stable I would later own. In the 40s, I picked up pop bottles after school to have enough money to ride horses on the weekends. I was born in the 30s in Chicago, Illinois. I learned to work hard. I've loved animals. I raised an amazing daughter. I have a wonderful story and amazing memories from the life I've lived. Some people call me an inspiration. My friends just call me Roz. Listen to Cal and Rosalind Galbraith ramble on and on about standard bred horses, Brangus cattle, pony thieves, equine competitions, the NFL, Cal's grandparents, and much, much more. So, sorry for those of you that are thinking, well, I just read that on my own, but I wanted to give you a quick outline of what she's been up to the last few years. So, there it is. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I do have a few clinics coming up. August 3rd, Liberty, Missouri. Just a one day on a Saturday. And then August 16th through 18th is three days in Lone Jack, Missouri, which is near Kansas City. Uh, The first day will be lessons, and then the next two days will be a two-day clinic. So I hope you guys can come out. We are gearing up for the Big Ranch Clinic in the middle of September in Pennsylvania. Hope uh, we can get some of you out there. And the KC Ranch Horse Classic will be the last Saturday in August here in Kansas City, and we'll be talking more about that on the next episode. So, without further ado, I bring you Rosalind Galbraith. Okay, here I am in San Antonio, Texas with my friend Rosalind Galbraith. Rosalind, thanks for being on the podcast. Looking forward to doing this. Rosalind, tell us a little bit about uh, how you and I know each other. You've known me longer than I've known you. So tell me, uh, tell me how you know me and how, how our families are connected. Our families are connected way, way back, way back when your grandfather was a boy. He, was, uh, and he met my husband. Was a, God had several years on me, so and he was a really big deal at that time. My husband was. Mm-hmm. Your grandpa was fourteen years old at that time. That's how long 
those two went back. Okay. And when... Uh, and your husband, sorry to interrupt. I'm just going to, every now and then I want you to clarify something for the listeners. Of course, I know some of our uh, the stories, but your your husband was a big deal in what? Draft horses. When they were when they were at the top of the of the horse heap, uh, huge shows, big people involved in Percheron horses primarily. Uh, he was he had uh, he was farm manager for several big farms and had uh, a lot to do, a lot of showing. He was pretty pretty well known. He is in he is still well known. He's passed away forty years ago. Sure, and he's been uh, in the Clydesdale Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. He's a, and he did a lot of judging of heavy horses, but the heavy horses uh, was his strong suit. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we got married, why I joined his uh, acquaintances, and that's when I met the Dowdies. And your mother and your aunt were teenagers when I first met them. I see. They were in high school, and I've known you since you were just a little little guy. You and your brother Taylor and your brother Gabe. Mm-hmm. The, the whole family and your your grandpa had a big influence on me because we we wound up buying Branga's cattle from him and he wound up acquiring Clydesdale horses. Mm-hmm. That's the way it goes. I, he always knows a lot about horses, but not a lot about Clydesdales. But yeah, I knew nothing about cattle, huh. nothing. And yeah, if, whatever kind of business you're in, you've got to have a mentor, and he was mine. Sure, sure, sure. So, where was he at at the time when you guys met? When I met them, they were in Rayville. In Rayville. Mm-hmm. It just, uh, well, actually, I knew them before that, but just in acquaintances, because my husband, Alec, uh, was with the Wilson and Company six-horse team. They, they toured 11 months of the year, mm-hmm. and we would uh, wind up the year in Kansas City at the American Royal, and that's where I first met Jesse Dowdy. At the Royal? Was at the Royal, yeah. They were, and that's where they live in Rayville, Missouri. So, sorry though, I cut you off a minute ago. You were starting to say that, and I didn't realize that my grandpa was was a lot younger when he first met Alec. Oh yeah. And and how what what was they? Well, how did they meet? What what were they doing? I'm there? sure it had something to do with heavy horses. Sure. They just because uh, Alec was touring around with the and, horses, and showing. He was showing doing them, a lot sure. of showing. He he is showing horses. Uh, the Percheron horse would have fifty yearlings. Yearling fillies in a class. Hmm. Uh, it was they were a big deal. J.C. Penny was involved with it. Frank Ratchy, head of the American Bankers Association, was involved with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Skidmore, who was this consigliere of the Capone family in Chicago, was involved with it. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. A lot of those. A lot of the big horse shows. Horse show stuff, uh, a lot of people get involved in like that, you know, oh, yeah. big, big yeah. time business people. I don't care what area of horses it is, you got to have some money behind it, whether you're a trainer or. So tell us about my grandpa. <laughs> of course, I remember a few things about him, but you, you knew him a lot longer than I did. Well, he helped me an awful lot because uh, I say I was totally ignorant about the cattle. And I thought they were more like horses than they were. They're not like horses very much at all. Mm-hmm. They eat grass, and that's that's about where the similarity ends. Mm. And the business end, I never did learn. And that's very important that you learn that, or you aren't going to be in business. But I had very good cattle, very good, and I took care of them well. Gosh, I think I took three young bulls down to Rayville to go to Jimmy Ottman's test mm. one year he had over in uh, – in Nebraska, mm-hmm. and I had three bulls, and there was forty bulls on test, and I had uh, 
three in the top five. I had the number one bull and the number three and five. Yeah. yeah. That's the caliber of, of stock that I had, and I got it all from Jesse Dowdy. I bought yearlings because that's all I could afford. He gave me some pretty good ones. Yeah. Some not so good, you know. He had to get, but there was always one or two that would. If you've got two horses, one's better than the other, and if you got ten heifers, one's better than the other nine. And uh, it's it's that's a similarity between the two mm-hmm. animals. But they about ends there. Yeah. But you can make pets out of your cows too. Yes. Yeah, I've seen that. And Grandpa did a little bit more of that towards the end of his life. At times, you know, you know it helps sell them. Yeah, it does. When a guy comes to buy a buy a bull from you, and when that first started, when I sold my riding stable in in, uh, in Michigan and and took my cows and went to Missouri, yeah, I found out then that the real bottom of the cattle industry is the commercial breeder, mm-hmm. the guy that has all other kind of cows but wants one of your bulls to head up his herd. Right. When that first happens, you know, you get – that's an interesting experience because these guys come and then here you are, a, a woman cattle breeder. I mean, holy, we don't do that. Yeah. And we don't talk about the very important things that need to be talked about. So you do that first. First thing you do is get it out of the, get it out of the way, uh, how important uh, this bull and his equipment is mm-hmm. as a bull and where he came from as a cow and how good she is as a cow because he's going to keep all of his heifers. Mm. And he's, he wants to know about that udder, how good it is and sure, just how good she is. And, and you just go out there. The first time, the time that kind of stuff happens, why it's it's a delicate matter. And the next time when that guy needs another bull, and he calls you up and says, "You know what I need? I kept all of, all the other heifers from that bull, and I need a new bull. And you know what I need? So just bring it up." But that takes years, sure. years to get involved into that kind of a partnership with your clientele. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you mentioned the boarding stable in Michigan. Tell us, uh, tell us about that. Oh, <laughs> you were up there for a while. I was raised in Michigan, okay. and, and uh, there was a riding stable. It was only three miles away, so I could get there on my bicycle in fifteen minutes downhill all the way. Took me a while to get home, and I would, when I was a kid, I'd pick up pop bottles. They were worth two cents a piece, and then I'd have a dollar and fifty cents if I <laughs> when I had right. uh, enough of them, and then I'd go and spend it all. I'd go horseback riding for one hour, and I'd spend the rest of the day just. Being there. Well, I went all through junior high. And then when I was in high school, I wound up working there all through high school. I think I was a guide for one year. The rest of the time, I did more than guide. I took care of the place. I ran that place. Mm-hmm. He didn't pay. I mean, I, I would, <laughs> I worked I worked for four years at $50 a month yeah. and room and board. Yeah. What, what year was this, give or take? Oh, in the 50s? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I graduated in '58, so that's <laughs> that's, and then I well I had to go on to bigger and better thing. I'd go to college, and I had to leave. But periodically, he would have a problem, and and uh, and I'd have to come back and help him out. Mm-hmm. He's not a good businessman. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the day came when, uh, oh gosh, 1967, Martha was born. My daughter was mm-hmm. born. Yeah, and he said. Yeah, you you've got to come back, and uh, I said I can't. <laughs> you know, I have I have the. She was only six months old. She was born in June. Well, he just made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and uh, and I had to go back. I had, and I went up there. I didn't want to go. 
uh, I really didn't. Uh, my husband says, oh, he says, you, you can't turn this opportunity down. And I, I knew exactly what I was getting into. Yeah. It, those, those public stables are nothing but work. Right. And he had stuff. When I got up there, Cal, he had 167 head of horses. Whew. Things were all out of hand. That's a lot of horses. There was a lot of Indian in this guy. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he just, he, horses were money. But they weren't money when you had 20 mares having a foal every year. Every five years, you get another 100 horses. Right. I mean, let's, <laughs> That adds up, yeah. I mean, he wouldn't sell them. Right. So the, the first thing I did was, I mean, the very first thing, besides castrating 13 stallions, was let everybody know that sold horses and would be bringing them to sell, that we weren't going to pay for any horses, but we would trade two, three horses for one. Mm-hmm. One good one that we could go into the riding stable mm-hmm. for a couple that had never had a hand laid on them in the five, six, seven years they'd been on the place. Right. We had too many of those, right. and that's exactly what we did. We got those numbers down fairly fast. Mm-hmm. We, yeah. ma- we maintained about 100 head. And then you used those horses for lessons and things like that? Not or? too many lessons, just public. The We were in a big tourist area. Where was this? In, in, uh, in western Michigan, western. yeah. Had uh, two state parks within 10 miles of us, and then another one that was 25 miles further north, and many camps, and just, we would be very busy. We People would just come and ride. And- they would just come and ride by the hour, so much an hour. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, it was $1.50 an hour. I don't think we ever got over four fifty an hour. Hmm. We had a competitor. <laughs> over that was uh, about 25 miles away, and and. You undercut us pretty much, but yeah. wasn't really competitive. We had an; it was an extremely good stable, yeah. very high class stable, good horses, every kind of horse you could ever want. We had walking horse, uh, saddlebreds, quarter horses, good ones, not so good ones, the kind that could take care of themselves, and the kind that had to have a good rider. So a good rider could come and get a good ride. Yeah, beautiful trails. Yeah. So how long did you stay there? Then you went back. I went back as the owner of that facility. I never even, we were in Illinois at the time, never even left Illinois till that was done. And he was happy to do that. Went up there with an attorney to make sure it was all right. And and, uh, and he really, yeah, he understood everything that was going to happen. He was happy. He just, it had gotten so out of hand. He couldn't handle his help. He couldn't handle the public. He couldn't handle the, it was just bad. He was a kind of an eccentric man, but a very intelligent man, very smart. He had a great time. He, Alec was doing a lot of judging at that time, and now he was going off to these fairs, and he took he took John with him. <laughs> so now John got out of this place in the middle of the summer of these state fairs and in Wisconsin and Ohio and uh, just yeah, and because the judge judge doesn't get to uh, pal around with anybody when you're the judge, you have to. Keep yourself separate. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so, so that was good for both of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went through the NRHA judges and the National Reining Horse Association myself a few years back. And, of course, you know, I was around Grandpa a lot, and he was judging a lot. And so, and then my dad uh, as a wrestling official. 
yeah. right, for high school and college wrestling. So I know a little bit about how that works on that side. I always can equate those two pretty quick. You know, you're you're the referee or you're the judge and you you get to be a part of the contest and then you go to a separate hotel and you go to a separate place for dinner and because you just can't be out there palling around with you people. Can't. E- even if they are people that you kinda know it's kinda how it works. Yeah. So. And you know everybody. Yeah. When you when you're in that world, you know everybody. Yeah. Uh, the draft horse world at that time was very small. I know I've been at those after after the uh, show parties that you can attend. Right. And uh, When it's all over. And it's all over, yeah. And someone says, can, okay, now, you can explain why you did some of those foolish things you did right. today. You <laughs> right, <know>? exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, Alec always could. He always had, he had a phenomenal memory, and he could remember every horse. Uh-huh. Tell you how he placed him, why he placed why him. Why he placed him. And that's always. Is, the reasons are important. Oh, they, you have to have a reason. Just I didn't like them better. Oh, we, we've all been to shows where the horse, the judge just should not have been a judge. He just wasn't, uh, didn't know enough. Oh, gosh, I was at a very big show one time when, if he hadn't had his his uh, his helper there, he was going to put the reserve the senior champion up, grand champion overall. You know, was going to beat his his senior champion with his reserve horse. He didn't know the difference. He didn't know one from the other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so continue on with your your life story a little bit. So you were in Michigan then at that time mm-hmm. for I moved to Missouri. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I had I had a I had an accident and I got sued. One of those everybody has accidents every year. You'll, you're going to have some people fall off these horses. I don't care what you do; it's going to happen. You bet. And many times it'll be a severe accident. It'll be a definite injury. Mm-hmm. Broken this, broken that, broken back. Concussions, uh, serious accidents. Sure. Horses are dangerous. I always tell people at my clinics mm-hmm. that every now and then I'll say something to the effect of, "Does anybody know the only guaranteed way to never come off a horse?" Don't get on it. <laughs> people and usually somebody comes up with it. You don't ever get on. That's I'll the never only get way. On it. That's that's the only way. Because if you do, you're going to fall off. Yes. Anybody says, oh, "I've never fallen off," and well, that's real telling. Yeah, they haven't <laughs> done much riding. Exactly they've right. never fallen off. I, I know somebody that I don't know him well, but I know somebody else that went there, and they said that there was a person giving a clinic. They were teaching a clinic, and the lady stands up there, and the first thing she says was, "I've never can't. I've never been bucked off a horse." She hasn't and, ridden very many bucking horses. I said, yeah, she hadn't ridden very many horses, obviously. <laughs> or start, she hadn't started very many colts, at least. You know. Yeah. So anyway, go ahead, though. Sorry. Well, I don't know. I've never had very many colts do much bucking. You're always ready for that, and you well, stop it point. before it starts. You know, you exactly. they have a they tell you everything they're going to do. Practically, if you're paying attention to them, it's that old scamp that that you've ridden a million yeah. times. That's the one that's going to see something, yeah. and all of a sudden, it looks like a alligator to him or something you know and yeah. he's going in one way and you're down there on the ground right that's that's the one that's going to do you in yeah and i think a lot of those older ones are the ones that we get pretty comfortable with right people i mean just people Relax. in general they're more relaxed and mm-hmm. they're oh this I, this one's been out here a million times where like you point you that was a great point you said like the colts you're more ready you know because you're more aware that they may do something and and you said it in a different way but the way i've heard it said was if you're kind of if you're if you're kind of a good hand you can stay on a horse that bucks but if you're a good horseman you don't get him bucking in the first place or you stop it before it gets it to that never point, happens right? yeah you'll you'll see you'll see something that he might shy at that so you're you're looking at it and i swear they have an intuition when you're seeing something they look that way because <laughs> oh, you if you're looking at something the next thing you know you're heading for it 
they, it's like they pick it up, and I don't know, maybe it's a shift in your body or something, but uh, they seem to know what you're doing, and sure. you should know what they're, what's going to happen, and because you can anticipate all that. You're just as anticipatory as they are. Right. So, you, so this accident happened. And you went yeah. to Missouri. Oh, yeah. And I lost the suit. And uh, yeah, he, he had dislocated his shoulder, mm. <laughs> sued me for $30,000 and went to court, got a jury. Yeah, don't get a jury because uh, they will, uh, anybody that is anything like you will not be on that jury. It's not going to be a jury of your peers, I'll tell you that. It's not going to be a jury of horse barn owners. <laughs> they won't know anything about horses right. or business or uh, livestock, nothing. There's always somebody to blame, it seems like. Oh, gosh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I lost the suit, and the jury gave him, I think, $10,000. The whole thing cost me around fifteen dollars to $15,000, $16,000. It was what happened, you know, that I lost that suit. And it should not have happened. I mean, everybody that was riding with this young man came there and testified for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I had uh, <laughs> it just it, it, nothing I could have done, nothing that could sure, be done. Sure, sure. Everything he did encouraged that horse to do what he did, which right. was take off in a running spot. Right. And uh, the, it was very busy and that day. And, and the, there was a group that heard him yelling, whoa, 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 as he was coming up that road. And uh, so the, the guide, guide got her party up ahead of her and was right there to make sure that horse didn't run into somebody. The horse came and stopped abruptly, and he fell off. And that was just, that was the whole accident right there. Nothing could be done. No equipment broke. No, nothing. And they won that suit. They had good attorneys. They had a I did not. That's another thing. You don't know how good your lawyer is until it's too late. You're in court. <laughs> Sometimes that's probably true. Oh, it's it is true. Yeah. You just don't know until you till it's too late. Till the contest is on. That fella had a better lawyer than I did. What did you start doing once you got to Missouri? Oh, where were you? You were in Coal Camp at that I time. I was yeah outside of Coal Camp. I was in Benton County. It's a good place to be. I was ten miles from everything. Ten miles from Coal Camp. Ten miles from Lincoln. Ten miles from Stover. <laughs> out in the middle, of, you had to drive a mile off the road to get into the farm. Beautiful, beautiful farm. And I brought all my cows and uh, five horses. Uh, I can't get rid of the horses, you know. I had five horses and uh, started in the cattle business. And that's, yeah, and I was very fortunate to, uh, because of my association with Jesse Dowdy. The second year I was there, I hosted the Heart of America Brangus Breeders Association. Right. I don't know if you were there or not. Maybe not. Probably not. What year would that have been? I don't recall. I don't recall what year. Years all run a lot <laughs> together. I was all prepared that everybody in the Brangus business would be able to see my cows, and it was like 110 in the shade and no shade. And all my cows were found shade, and you, they, the only ones they saw were the ones that were there to be inspected and would fail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, they were bad colored or they had yeah. they had scurs or they had something wrong with them. Those are the only ones that they saw because I had them up right. yeah, to be looked at by the Brangus breeders. So that's something that, that my grandfather was. And I mean, obviously he was one of the charter members of the Brangus Association. Yes, he was. But then later he was the inspector or still was from the beginning. Oh, I think he always was an inspector. I don't think he ever lost it. I went with him. I sold all my cattle. When I sold out, he sent a, a, a sale my way. It took all my cows down into the boot heel. And he went down there for an inspection and I went, uh, went along. 
and so tell, tell our listeners what what that means. What, what what's an inspection whenever they go with it? Well, cattle? the Brangus cattle they have to be certified by an inspector, a qualified inspector for at that time. At that time, uh, they could have no white ahead of the navel. Had to be polled. No horns. They had to be polled. They had to have a quality about them. It wasn't difficult to, to make it because you you were breeding Brangus to Brangus, and they came out Brangus. If they had a spot in the wrong place, they they just wouldn't. You couldn't paper them. Right. However, they had very high resale value yeah. as far as uh, like your heifers that you couldn't register. You could sell them uh, as weanling heifers, and they would have automatically they'd be at the top of any because they would go to breeders to be used in their program. The commercial breeders would pay top dollar for those heifers. So grandpa traveled all over North America. Uh, he was the inspector from the Panama Canal North, yeah. if I remember the story correctly. And that's what that's what he that that was his territory to inspect. So he he looked at every every Brangus cow that was or every herd at least at, at once a year or every couple of years. He had to look at them for a while. I think he got uh, he created the breeders. The percentages had to be right, and the quality had to be right in order for them to get into the, the association itself. Sure. He created all these Brangus breeders. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So here we are in Texas now. Of course, <clears throat> all these years later, you're living down here with your daughter Martha, and you know I'm just living up the road here in Bastrop, not too far. And so we came down here to visit today. But as I'm driving around Texas, I see Brangus cattle here and Everywhere. Brangus cattle there, and of course I I know. There's a little bit of pride there for me in a way because the person that owns those cattle today here in San Marcos, Texas, they may not, they probably wouldn't have, wouldn't know, not all of them would remember who my grandpa was, but I know that if it wasn't for him, they wouldn't have Brangus cattle. Wouldn't have happened. I don't, there wouldn't be Brangus cattle today, or at least not that association and that, and that I regard. remember your dad telling me, or your grandpa telling me, that when he went to get, graduate from the University of Missouri, mm-hmm. that he almost didn't graduate because his thesis was on the the salvation of the cattle industry in the United States would be crossbred Brema. And he said anybody that could have a cockamamie idea like that hadn't received his education at the University of Missouri. Yeah, that's what they told him. And now, of course, Brangus were the first. Now there's Brayfords, Charbrays. Right, right. Beef masters. Beef masters. Everything. Yeah. And the salvation, I think, is the... Crossbreeding with the Brahmas because they have so many attributes. Just crossbreeding in general. And when he was in college, that wasn't even a, a thing that was really big, you know. No, no. These purebred breeders, they didn't want to do such a thing. You want to be an Angus breeder, you get an Angus. But he went, he went to the best Angus breeder in the country for his base stock for himself. Back east? Yeah. The Y Plantation? Y Plantation. And then got some Brahmas from the Marceau Ranch in Louisiana? Yep. And some other places as well. But then later, well, I don't know, 40, 50 years later, I got to go with Grandpa. Back, Did back down yeah. to uh, the day I graduated from high school, the next morning, Grandpa and I headed out. And we went to Kaplan, Louisiana, to the Marceau Ranch. And we picked up a couple of Brahma cows. And he had at that time the remaining Y Plantation Angus that David Freeman had, had brought out to Missouri. And uh, he had what was left over, so he kind of went. So we kind of went through that again after he did that in the fifties. We kind of went through that again fifty years later. I graduated high school in two thousand one, mm-hmm. and we started that again, and we started kind of breeding some more Brangus, kind of first generation again. So getting to see some of those places that he had started out at, 
all those years later, of course, it was so much different. You know, the the Marceau Ranch was a fraction of itself, you know, of course, at this time. But hearing some of those stories that he'd, he had been on and then being able to go down there was really cool. I tell you, that would have been a real thrill. We would get all together. You know, I hear just me and uh, how am I going to work my cattle without help? And we would all help one another. Robert Pickering mm-hmm. uh, would be there. Uh, John John Dana. Oh, yes. What a bunch, you know, and Jesse. What a what bunch. What a bunch to go <laughs> herding cattle. I mean, we would go from one farm to the other farm. You know, we'd just loading up our horses and away we'd go because we did it all from horseback. It was just so much fun. And uh, you just close your eyes and go that that. Pickering had, a, gosh, I think he had about 1,800 acres over there. Yeah. And it was all pretty rugged. Yeah. Uh, he had a bunch of cattle that uh, had 150 yearling heifers that were just wild as March hares. Oh, it was fun to get those where they were going to go. It, just, it was just a gas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and George would be there. George sure. Dowdy. Sure, Uncle and, George. Uh, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. I'd- he would come and help me a lot, too. George was a great Great friend. Yeah, that was my grandpa's brother. They were helping me. George and Jesse were helping me one time with the <laughs> bringing the cows in. Jesse was was uh, one of the things I had up in Michigan and brought her to uh, Missouri was Apple Apple Dowdy. I called her because that's who she was. She was your mother's horse. Nothing sacred to Jesse. Right, right, <laughs> Just right, isn't. Right. He, he gave me your mother's horse because <laughs> she wasn't there anymore, and she didn't have a horse. You know, had a place to keep him, and he wasn't going to keep that horse till it died. Yeah, and uh, so he gave me Apple. <laughs> well, you're not going to say, "Oh, I don't want her." You know, she was a Missouri Foxtrotter. Right. Yeah. So Jesse was riding Apple, and uh, I think George was on Martha's little horse. She had a crossbred walking horse, and I don't know what the other was, but she was a walking fool, and she had. She was so full of cow that everybody wanted to ride her. She just loved to work cattle. Right. Had to watch her all the time. She'd pin her ears and snarl at those things. Mm-hmm. Slide right down a ditch into water. She was a wonderful horse. Now, I don't know what I was doing, but I, we were up on the hill watching Jesse going down, and I thought, oh, my land, there's a bumblebee nest right down there where he's at. Because I'd, I'd mowed hay not too long before that, and I'd— Mowed over it. Had to shut my tractor all up so others because they weren't they weren't happy about that. Sure. And of course, they weren't happy about Jesse and Apple being there either. <laughs> Pretty soon, he's just he's swatting bees with his hat. <laughs> he's, he reached down and grabbed Apple by the ear because there was a bee in her ear. Oh gosh! <laughs> he scrunched Trying. that. He's. Oh, scratch the beer right out of her ear by squeezing her ear. Together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the only way to get it out. And I and George and I are up there just laughing like fools, oh thinking, "Oh my gosh, he, surely he's going to stay on that horse because she was she was a lot of horse, and uh, which he did because that was a bad place to fall off. Oh yeah, right in the middle of that business. <laughs> oh, it's huge. It's a bit, you know, bumblebees are ground dwellers, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 that was his fault too because he had me sowing uh, clover. And my pastures, and uh, that was his fault too. <laughs> yeah, that that drags that drags bees. Sure, bees uh, sure. pollinate. Brings them right clover. in there. Oh gosh, yeah, they weren't there before. They'll be there after you put clover in there. Yeah, I'll never forget. God, that was funny. <laughs> I bet you know. We, we, yeah, he doesn't get a lot of sympathy. Yeah, no, 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 no sympathy there. No sympathy there. <laughs> That's for sure. 
you know, of course, when I was around, they were um, grandpa and George and they would ride. And I remember when I was younger, of course, we'd all go ride and gather cattle and all that. But, oh, yeah. but obviously they were getting a little older when I was around and they weren't doing as much of those young horses on their own and stuff like that. Right. So I didn't get to see as many of those stories from them personally, but it's always good to hear some of them from you guys that were around them. So. <laughs> remember that mule that he had? Which one? I think that Charm might have had the mule. Yeah, I think you're right. Because it, it was a walking mule. And oh, my gosh, it was a nice mule. He sold it. I mean, <laughs> it was really a nice mule. It would walk. It would be perfect one for him. Yeah. Yeah, just perfect. So they, they had saddlebreds. They had walking horses. Mm-hmm. They had Morgans. They had quarter horses a little bit. We had a little, little bit of everything. And that's what we used to gather the cattle and work on the ranch. They can and, all do it. Yeah, they can all do it. I I don't think there's any limit to what a horse can do if you want ask him to do it. You, Show them what they're, they're the greatest critter that's ever been put on this earth, maybe even more than we. Yeah, I mean, they've done more to help us than any other animal ever. They fought all oh, our wars, bet. carried us all across, plowed our fields, yeah. harvested our crops, took us to town. I mean, my gosh, they brought us here, they brought us here wherever we are. They brought us here in a way. I mean, this. They, this whole this whole thing of, of learning, of living without the use of horses is brand new as far as civilization is concerned in the thousands of years we've been here. And it's changing back. You notice how these yeah. people are changing back? The draft horse industry has never been any bigger than it is right now. Hmm. They've got a show in Oklahoma. I was just seeing it on RFD TV mm-hmm. where they had, I think, the female six-horse team championships. Is that right? They had uh, Percherons, Belgians, and Clydesdales all in competition. I mean, the ring was full of them. There was a dozen of them, uh, just just all mares. Yeah. So I remember when I was a kid, we had uh, Grandpa had a couple. He had a Belgian stallion. He had a Clydesdale stallion, mm-hmm. both for a while. We had quite a few Belgian mares, raised horses, raised uh, quite a few draft horses. And, and uh, I used to love driving with him. You know, we had that big wagon that him and Dale made, and then we had some other uh, little carts and different things yeah. that we'd pull. I and mean, that was just a great time. It was a great time. We had a lot of fun. I love that farm in Rayville. Yeah. This, I, I never got to see it when they were there. Of course, I was born the year they moved. So no. I, I remember, I don't remember being there at that time. I've been back there since and just kind of driven through it. Dowd, they still call it Dowdy Road, where the place where the place is. He had such good neighbors. Mm-hmm. You know, he had, had wonderful neighbors, but he carved that place right out of the wilderness, practically. And it, it's now, I might get this wrong. But it's now the Crooked River Conservation Area yeah. near, near Rayville, Missouri. Just for anybody that's been up in that area, there's a, a couple thousand acres of conservation land there. That was Grandpa's place. That yes, was the Grandma was. and Grandpa's farm. Yeah. So, and, no, they, and they, had, they had built the house. And beautiful just, home, I heard. Yeah. I've seen pictures of it. Oh, it was. It was everything Iona wanted in her house. Yeah. She could, they could sit there at the table and see out and see the, yeah. oh, over yeah. the bottom and all the stuff. Pretty cool. So you were over in... Europe for a while. Tell us about some of the some well, of the things you did over there with your horses. When, uh, I, my unfortunate experiences with the cattle industry. Anybody who was in the cattle business had a lot of problems in the eighties, and that's when I was there. Uh, I got there in seventy nine, and the bottom went right out of it. By eighty five, it was in big trouble, and I didn't know enough about the business. I didn't have enough cows. First thing I should have done was get my herd numbers up to ninety head. Because that's what it takes to carry any paper in the cattle business, any paper. Or it did then. Now, probably need 190. I don't know. I have to do something. <laughs> I have to go back to horses. Now, my daughter's graduated from high school. She's on her way to Maryville, mm-hmm. Northwest, Northwest Missouri yeah. State. She went to all the colleges, and that's the one she wanted to go to. 
if you know her, she does what she wants to do. I don't know where she got I, I that. I was going to say, I don't know where she got no, that from. I don't know. But she's pretty pretty sure of herself most of the time. So, And I had friends in uh, the racehorse business, in the standard bread business, harness horses. And we'd go and visit them. And they'd always said, you know, go down and visit them. Why, gosh, in the morning you're out jogging horses, so much fun. Oh, anytime you're looking for a job. Well, there came a time I was looking for a job, by golly. And I called them and said, how soon can you get here? I just ran away from that farm, mm-hmm. <laughs> went down and got in that business. That would have been 80, well, she graduated in 80, 85, so five years after that. By 90, I'd been in that business for four years, and I'd found out I'm pretty darn good at this. I didn't like it at all. I thought, boy, these, this is just not, this is not everywhere I went. I'd never been. Everything I did, I'd never done. Every person I'd never met, it's, it turned Turned fifty in that business. <laughs> there was there was a horrible thing, you know, to have, and I'm, I'm and I wanted that day off, my fiftieth birthday. I wanted it off, and uh, and I couldn't get it, <laughs> couldn't get it because we were racing that night, and I had to go out and we're training horses out on the now we're at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. We were this is a classy stable. This is a very high caliber stable, and uh, a Grand Circuit all the way. All of our horses were into the Grand Circuit, which is just what you think it is. They go into all these big races. Almost every race is a stake race. Mm-hmm. Almost every race you're in is, uh, is six-figure racing. Okay. And what kind of horses were these? Standard breads. Standard bread. Mm-hmm. They were pac- these were? Trotters, trotters and pacers. and pacers both. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we trained them. We, would, we had no horse older than three years old in the stable. We had nothing but stake horses for the two- and three-year-old stakes. You get, you get them bought. You get them ready to race. You get them racing. You get them sold, and you get some more. That's the business. Don't fall in love with your racehorses. That's not easy to do. Sure. Because they are so oriented to the person that's looking after them. Yeah. I mean, you are the whole herd to them. And that that was a lot of your job, just the, the care of the horses and training of the horses. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you did it all. You, you trained the horses. You did everything with them. When I was in the States, I never went third trip because that's at high speed. And first two trips, you bet. In Italy, I went all three trips. And <laughs> yeah, that's that's just like a race. You know, if you're in a race, you have the first trip, the warm-up. That's very light. Mm-hmm. You jog a couple miles. And you may or may not turn and go a little bit, depending on where you're at. Um, second trip, you're going pretty good. He's definitely stretching out and doing a little more, but you don't want to take the race. You never go. You never go. If you're not in the race, in a race, you never go at race speed. That's the money's got to be ready. The money's up. How'd you end up in Italy? The trainer, well, now Martha's graduated from from school. Now the pressure's off. Right. Because you're taking kids are out of the way, I can well do other things. He had a scholarship of sorts, and we had saved for it. But it's pretty hard to go to college and not wind up owing money to somebody. But that didn't happen to us. And your Between husband? she and I. Oh, he was gone. He your died. Your husband at that time had passed away. He had passed away in 79. 79, yeah. okay. And, uh, yeah, he had cancer. And that's just um, probably was one of the most difficult things for me going to Missouri because he was a rock for me, and he was gone. 
Anyway, yeah, between me sending her everything I could and her working at school because they gave you jobs at school, yeah, we we didn't owe anybody 10 cents. It can be done today. You better can. It can be done today, but these kids today don't want to work. That's, that's they a really very good don't want to work. No, that's a good point. I was just I just saw something the other day. I read something about the stats of kids coming out of college with these loans, and it's just Huge. unbelievable. They are in debt right up to their ears. It'll be years before they get out, if they ever get out. I love that one school in Missouri where you work your way. And it, mm-hmm. uh, that, Is it the Ozarks or yes. College of the Ozarks, yeah. maybe? Yeah. I, they, I saw a piece in, on television down here about yeah. that school. Yeah. Can you believe it? Yeah, I remember when I was in high school looking at that school, and there's a, I, I, there's a couple other colleges. They raise their own food. Yeah. <laughs> they raise their own food. They cook it. They serve it. They eat it. They clean up. They do everything. Yeah. There's no employees in, at that school. Uh, I, I, now she's out. She doesn't need. She doesn't need me. Okay. And I'm I'm pretty darn good at what I do now, taking care of these horses. I got this whole thing down pat. <laughs> and and my trainer, my trainer's father, had an opportunity to head head up a stable in Italy. I thought, oh wow, that's great. That's lucky. You know, and he was he was in the stable himself. And uh, I was working for Mark O'Mara at that time, his son. Everything, I won't say everything he learned was from his father, but a lot. He was an O'Mara too. All, the, both of them were in Hall of Fame uh, in the harness horse business. And then, of course, father went in faster than, than Mark did. So, but it was Mark's stable. But Frank got this opportunity to uh, go. He had been going over there and, and uh, working with some horses. Yeah, he was a clever guy and as, almost as good as any veterinarian, maybe better than some. Sure, sure. Yeah, because he knew what the horse was going through. So uh, I said, oh, wow, that's that's fantastic. Lucky. You're so lucky, you know. And he says, you want to go along? He says, I got to have somebody there that will do what, what I want done that understands English. English. <laughs> oh, Yeah. That's a chance. It's an opportunity. I said, I am ready for an adventure. Yeah. So off we go to Italy. Unfortunately, we our owners <laughs> were, were really something else. But that first year, we had the, the three-year-old national champion of Italy belonging to those old owners. And he was uh, purchased from the farm we were at outside of Rome. He was raised there. We'd gotten him as a, as a three-year-old, and he couldn't get to the track. He wouldn't go. He'd been spoiled as a two-year-old. They haven't got strong feelings for that equine animal. He's just another way to make a buck. If he's not good enough, why? It's not uncommon for them to race. I had a, I had a very nice two-year-old. We get him to the races, and what do they do? He wins his first race. Two days later, he wins his second race. Three days later, he doesn't win. He's second in his third race. And the next time I go to take him out on the track, he says, I don't want to be a racehorse anymore. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't go. Wouldn't go on the track. I don't know whatever happened to him. Nice, nice cold. But that's that's their way. They're very hard on him. Yeah, so we were at this farm where this horse came from, the breeding farm where this horse came from as a three-year-old. Now he gets sent to us from the hands of one of these kind of trainers. And we harness him up. And he won't go. I mean, he wouldn't even leave the barn so cold-shouldered. You know, he just wouldn't do it. He threw himself down in a heap. This horse was sired by a horse called Mikado C., who was a champion in Italy. Can't do it. You must outthink him. They raised this horse, and they know. 
and we just dropped that whip and we unharnessed him right there as he's laying and we get him up and now we got to think about what we're going to do, how we're going to get this horse to the track. You couldn't harness him up and, and take him to the track. Mm. Now we had the quick hitches. Uh, you probably have never seen them or heard of those, but we don't tie a horse in like a, like they used to where they nice. would wrap the the right. strap around the shaft and buckle it down. Mm -hmm. Those days are gone. Okay. Now they have a, an apparatus on the shaft and a receiver on the harness, and it's click, 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 and you go. You could lead this horse without the cart on. <laughs> So we get a guy, I would be on one side of the horse, another fellow would be on one of one of uh, these, uh, the fellows that worked for the, the guy that owned the place would be there. Another one would be leading the horse. Frank would have the lines and we'd head off for the track and we'd just go click, click. He's Now Frank's not on yet, but we increase the speed a little bit. Everybody's trotting along. Frank leaps on the cart. We have the overcheck not tight at all. And he said, this isn't so bad. He was cold-shouldered. Now, that's a term you see in a lot of harness horses. They get that way if they've been hauling a load too too heavy. it's Their shoulders actually get sore. And this was just an affliction he thought he had, but he didn't really. And we, we had to do that. All that, oh, gosh, we got down there in the, maybe January or February. By the time we got to the races, he was ready to go to the races. Yeah, And that's the way we had to hook him up that way for most of that time but then but we get down on the track and we never asked him to do more than he was very capable of doing and the first time he frank trained him he said this horse is so fast it isn't funny i'll never forget him coming off the track he said he's so fast it isn't funny and he was he was he was he was three-year-old champion we were getting a lot of horses in the stable too for him to fix because yeah. he created a a lot of things, iodine. Well, he could inject stifles like he fixed stifles like you never saw. He had uh, acupuncture points that he would put a, a little of his ointment in. And <laughs> and, oh, thanks, yeah. Um, he could, yeah. Yeah. So I remember one of the things about you when I was younger, Grandpa always said this, and my mom said it. You learned so much about taking care of the horses over the over those years, keeping those horses sound. That's, uh, you know, I thought I knew a lot when I got into that business because I'd owned so many hundreds of horses and been working and earning my living with them. And, I, and I'd seen a lot, done a lot. And I thought I knew a lot. But man, you get a horse in when you start getting into that competitive business where a horse is really straining himself, giving his all. Getting him there is one thing. Keeping him there is another. My my trainer, where I left him, he said, oh, you can't go anywhere. He says, until you tell me. How come you know when a horse is lame and I don't? Because he, he, he always knew when a horse was lame, but it had to be lame before he knew it. And I knew it before. <laughs> before he got lame. Before it ever got lame, yeah. I said, oh. I said, no. I said, Judge. He says, no. He says, you know something. I said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. He says, yes, I would, because I know. You know something that right. I don't know. And what I know, I learned from the cows and, and, and myself, too, and you probably know, too. Flies tell you. Well, I, I first noticed that cows, you'd see all the cows laying down. It was, it's cud chewing time. So we all lay down and we lie. And here's one of them is just covered with flies. Now, she's not uncomfortable. She's not getting up. She's not, she's just being just like the rest of them. Well, how come it can only be one thing? That bull didn't catch her and she's cycling again. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that's all it is. She's got a higher temperature than the others. That's what draws them. That's why the flies are there. Yeah. So they'll go to a joint just the same then. They certainly will, or an injury. With the heat. An injury, a strain, a muscle strain, a tendon, suspensory. So a lot of times you and see And their that. feet, too, even a foot. And I know they get on their, their hoofs. Right. And you brush them off. Now, you, you got to remember that these racehorses get bathed every single day. So they're on a clean horse. It isn't a bunch of dirt or, or manure or anything. This is a clean horse. And you notice these things when you're starting to put them away. Because you put them away every day. You're brushing them, growing them down and, and putting on the ligament and putting on the bandages. And they do, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's, you're, they call it rubbing horses for a reason. But uh, now I, you run your, right, this is a very sensitive part of your hand, and you can run that down. And if, it, if it's all a problem, you, it'll just radiate into my hand. I don't know about yours. It's probably tougher than mine. But the flies and on their hoofs, why would two or three flies go on a hard hoof? Why? You think, oh, my gosh, we have possibly a, a gathering, possibly coffin bone problems, possible. Mm-hmm. I better I better take care of that hoof a little bit. Maybe I better put on, better pack that rascal. We did a lot of foot packing on that business. Oh, I bet. Every time they ship, they get packed. That's hard on them, that shipping. Sure. And every time after every race, after every uh, training session, not the, not the slow training session, but there's always one a week that's fast. You pack those feet with mud and a little Epsom salts. Something you mentioned earlier, you were talking about shipping horses. Oh, they, everybody that pulls that drives that truck should spend some time back in that trailer and see what it's like for that horse, mm-hmm. whether it's a big semi or a pickup truck, because every little thing you do with that wheel is, is reflected in that trailer. Makes you think twice. I wrote an article. I write articles for half a dozen magazines in and out. I'm kind of slowing down on that a little bit. I've just been so busy lately, but wrote one about hauling. You know, about safety, traveling safe on the roads mm-hmm. and talked about different things. And one of them I talked about was just the horse hauling in general. And I, I put in there that my, my grandpa saying to me when I was young, he said, he said, honey, you want to drive your truck and trailer so your livestock doesn't have to move their feet? No, it's, it's not hard to see why they're afraid to load up into these little horse trailers. Uh, who hasn't gone down the road behind a horse trailer? And son of a gun's going 70 miles an hour. And he's, you think, oh, my land. So, how long were you in Italy? Four years. You were there four years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had some really good horses, I really did, and and I have to take credit for them. That's what I, that's what I like to do, of course. You bet. Yeah, you take a horse that, uh, I mean, like I had a four year old that, uh, my gosh, he was just a he was a very good horse. He was a sixth race special horse, and but he wasn't as good as he got to be. Uh, he set a record that no f- Italian four-year-old had ever gone as fast as he went, and he was just made him happy. We had a horse, an American horse, that uh, in the first year we were there, uh, that son of a gun came, and he had they paid big money for this horse, and he had never won a race in Italy. Here he comes into our barn. He needs to be fixed. Right. <laughs> There's something wrong. And in Italy— if they don't place, they always race in like company. So if you got 10 horses, they got 10 horses that are similar in their abilities. So it's a good race. And they should. In five races of, of that caliber, he should place, if nothing else. He should get money. He should be. And if they don't, 
the, they think there's something the matter with this horse and he can't race for 30 days. He's out. He won't be accepted in a race for 30 days. He's got to be healthy. Mm, sure. So here comes this horse, big black six-year-old stallion. He was very intimidating. I mean, I was nervous about him, and he was from the United States. He was into cross ties, and I walked in his stall, and I said, okay, I know you understand me. <laughs> right. You speak English. I can talk to you. <laughs> I mean, of course, he swelled up. You know how they go. They can swell right up. Oh, and yeah. he was swelled right up big and looked down at me, rolled his eyes. And I thought, oh, man, this, this is a scary horse. I started brushing him like an American would and talking to him like an American does. And we just, but Frank called his American trainer, a Michigan guy called Doug Ackerman. Said, we have this horse called Surefact. He says, and he hasn't won a race in the two years he's been here. He says, what do we have to do to make a winner? He says, oh, it's easy. He says, shoe him with Borium. Now, Borium, they didn't have over there, but we didn't go anywhere without it. He says, and he has to be happy. If he's not happy, he, he isn't going to race. So now I've got a job to make him happy. First, I started uh, in our shed row where our horses were, were just opposite of this whole bunch of groom's quarters. And in between was grass. Well, so I started just, I didn't go into his stall without a handful of grass. Never. And and if I was out and about, I'd grab a handful and give it to him, call him over to the door. And he got so he was looking forward to me. But he was a, he would fight other horses. And he had to be so careful around him with other horses, even out on the track. Uh, I couldn't even jog him because he would attack other horses on the track. Hmm. He really liked that grass. Yeah. And I said, well, one evening, I said, I'm, I'm going to take him out and grass him. I tell you, he really got big when he came out of that <laughs> stall. And all I, I had was I, I just had my lead shank on him, thinking the son of a gun is just going to go out there. I don't know what I was thinking. I thought, oh, my God, if he gets loose, he could kill one of these horses out here because was a, it was a working uh, a farm, a, a breeding farm. There were horses all over the place. He just got big, and I and I'm now I'm I've got him like this, and I reached down to get a handful of grass, and it was a full a full stretch. I mean, just and I waved that in front of his nose, and and eventually got it got him to because now all the other horses got their heads all out. Oh yeah, now they're all nickering and carrying oh yeah, on. they're all wishing yeah. they were him. Uh, just yeah, and and I'm just I said, why didn't I say something to Frank about this? Why didn't I? You know, I I mean, oh, but he finally he. He started nibbling that grass. So, man, I got another one real quick, and I'm pulling his head down. <laughs> yeah. And he eventually he realized that he was actually standing in this stuff, and he hadn't been in grass in I don't know when. Probably hadn't grazed much in his life. Oh, not very much with his attitude, not since he got into Italy at all, because he couldn't be. Uh, There's no fence could hold him. He finally, he started, he started eating grass, and, oh, gosh, that was super, and I let him back in his stall. After a few minutes, don't ever grass them for a long time, you know, because right. that's hard on them. That really, that was the real kicker. He got real happy. Yeah. He liked the idea of them watching him and him eating grass, yeah. and he yeah. would tear, he'd tear a big mouthful out, put yeah, his head yeah. up and chew it right at him, you know, just, oh, it was, yeah, it was something else. And he, uh, he you know, I had, I did get to train him one time because I beat the socks out of our good horse. Frank was driving the, our three-year-old. I was just following him along. We're coming down the stretch, and I just 
pulled and I went by him like he was standing still and I was at uh, on a jog cart going two one. A lot of races in this country are in two one. All the fair races are in two two one two two. And what does that mean? Two minutes. Two minutes and one second. Two, I see. I see. Gotcha. Yeah, it's thirty miles an hour. You think you're flying? Yeah. Well, you kind of are sitting on the back <laughs> yeah, of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so where do you see the horse industry moving towards today? Do you do you see some I good things know. out there? Or are you kind of unsure? Know. I know we've talked before about how it seems to be, you know, it can be can be pretty rough on the horses. You know, a lot of what a lot of the competitions, a lot of the things that people are doing. Well, I didn't like the business you were in. Mm-hmm. The rain yeah. cow horse. Well, for one thing, yeah, the money was in the fatority. Where the money goes, that's where the horses go. Two year olds can't stand that what they're doing. I'm sure they spoiled ten times. To get one, right? Oh, you bet. To the did. competition, maybe more than that. It's just, it's an unnatural act that they're asking them. Yeah, and when you when you say not not that I'm saying this to you more to the listeners, but when you said the word spoiled there, you mean ruined, ruined, not spoiled in a in a oh, spoiled yeah. in the grandkids oh, no. type of way. No, no, ruined, ruined, physically ruined. You bet, physically and mentally both. Yeah, yeah it happens a lot. It's just an unnatural thing. These horse lovers. I think are getting more intelligent all the time because people like yourself are going out and helping them uh, learn a little bit more. You know, you can buy a horse that's trained up to snuff. If you don't know how to give them the signals, they aren't going to know what to do. And, and that's that's so important. And, and no two trainers train exactly alike. So it's, it's a... And no two horses are exactly alike. Uh, that's a fact. That's a fact. I had more close calls in Italy than anywhere. Well-trained, well-broke horses. I almost thought I was going to die. <laughs> it just, I, I'm, normally, I'm very noisy around a barn. That's important to be noisy around a barn. You know, they always know you're there. Mm-hmm. I know where you're at. Well, you're kind of just noisy in general. I try to be, yeah. yeah I sing, I whistle, <laughs> I make a lot of noise. I right, try, right, right. especially around a barn. And uh, I had a six-year-old stallion, yeah. Italian bred, very good, very good uh, horse that and he was uh, over there. They put their stallions in the breeding shed if they've got the qualities that they want. And then uh, come springtime, they put them. They're going back on the track. They're going back to the racetrack, back to the barn, mm-hmm. shed rows. And he knew what he was at, he knew where he was, and he knows he really would have liked to have stayed in the breeding shed. And horses dream. They sleep and they dream. <laughs> they do things that we do. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been around them, you know they do. And I was having a quiet day, quiet morning. I don't know why, because that's not like me. And I had his feed. We always set up the feed the night before. And uh, even opening the door was, I didn't, wasn't noisy, which is, uh, it's it's all. And he was in the corner, head in the corner. And I don't know what he was thinking, but he came at me and he, his top teeth Cut me a little bit right here, mm. and his bottom was right there before he realized. Right there on the side of your face. Oh, yeah, he had tore my whole face off. You startled him. He was asleep, most he likely. He was sleeping, yeah. And he thought there was another horse, I'm sure. I'm sure that's what it was, because he would never have attacked a person. Never. Not this horse. Wouldn't it? And he wouldn't have attacked me. Yeah, they're not really attackers oh. too much. No. They're more trying to get out of the way or defend no. themselves if they no. have to. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. That, that that's the closest I think I've ever come to really terribly serious, possible death. <laughs> just because just I had just a little bit of a cut right there, and uh, 
but the other the lower jaw was, was right there. And I did, I thought, oh, I, I mean, I was just white. And he, he just pulled himself together, and he felt so bad about that. He really did. Yeah. And, and I told Tony, who, who owned this horse, I said, it's not his fault. It was, it was my fault. He never would have done that if he'd known it was me. I know it. But he was gone that, that afternoon. He was, I didn't have him anymore. He was back at the farm. Yeah. They yeah. race him out of the farm or whatever. I never even saw him again. There's still a lot of those races going on in Italy? Oh, very big. Yeah. Oh, for sure. But not so much here. Yeah. I've never been to Italy. I'm hoping uh, next year maybe I can make it over there. Yeah. I hope you do too because there's a lot of good horsemanship over there and, and a lot of horses. A lot of horses. I, if I'd known now uh, back in the, when I had that riding stable like what I know now, I'd have a whole stable full of standard breads. So one of the things that I've, I don't know, maybe come to appreciate or come to understand, I, I really, there was a point where I decided I wanted to learn about horses or I wanted to be good with horses. And I was focusing for a little while on kind of one breed of horse more than the others. And and I think anybody that wants to be really good with horses in general, they have to understand and be able to work with and be able to take into consideration all the different kinds of horses. Mm -hmm. And, and the one thing I really enjoy learning everywhere I go is there's there, I might go somewhere and they have only Crayola horses and I might go somewhere and they have only standard breads or only Icelandic horses, or, you know, I've worked with quite a few Frisians for a while, Arabians. Quarter horses. And there just seems like they're, uh, you know, I, I really enjoy learning, you know, once you understand working with horses in the way that I've been really trying to work on it, you know, it's, uh, of course, they're all different, but they all operate the same way. They all kind of think they're the same They're all horses. Way. They're all horses, right? And they all stem from that same basic animal that is a prey animal and wants to get away. And you don't want to be in the way when they want to get away. Right. You've got to be thinking about that when you're on the ground. They're dangerous animals. They they truly are. And, and uh, I've been kicked and I've been bit and I've been knocked down and all that kind of stuff. It's always your fault. You're in their way. That's right. You're in their way. They're going to do something. Well, whatever it is, there may be a loud bang over here, and you're over here on them, and they're they're going to go away. Right, you can get shoved around pretty good that way. But yeah. they have some habits that are are just if you've ever been around a a crowder, it is natural for them to go into pressure. That's one thing about your book. You say, "Oh, get him to yield the pressure." That's pretty darn hard to do because it's against their basic nature. Uh, their basic nature is to go into pressure. Have you ever seen a horse with a headache? You know what he does? He'll pound his head against the floor, against the wall. Mm, push on a headache. Yeah. yeah. Huh. But he'll he'll put you against the wall if he's one of those. Right. And you don't want to put two crowders together. My gosh, they'll put they'll squeeze the breath right out of you. I mean, they're just it's a, it's their nature to go into pressure. Sure. I, I know one of the things I've read or heard about that if you have a horse that's that's staggering around, you know, like he's got something seriously wrong, you don't want to put your hand on him. Right. You just lean right into him. If you're tall like you, you could put your hand over him and put your hand on the other side and walk with him to the barn or that. And and I know that's true because I had a horse I thought had encephalitis and was staggering in from the pasture. I called the vet. I said, I think I've got encephalitis here. And she had all the signs. I mean, she had the headaches. It, it's a nervous thing too, you know. And 
She was grinding, grinding her teeth and doing all the things that you hear about. If you've never seen it, you still read about it and find out about it. And my vet came, took her temperature. I hadn't taken her temperature. Yeah, how dumb. How dumb can you be? I was going to say that'd be the first thing you would have told me on the phone probably is that you take her temperature. First thing you do. <laughs> yeah. First thing you do. Well, it should be. You know, if you call the vet and you say, oh, I've got a horse with a temperature of 103, he'll say, I'll be there within the hour. Right. If you say, well, he just doesn't look right, he'll say, well, I'll be there as soon as yeah, I can. be there Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he took her temperature. He said, well, I can understand. He said, why do you think that? Because she's got all the signs, but she doesn't have an elevated temperature. She doesn't have encephalitis. She's got something else. What do you think it was? You don't have any idea. I didn't either, and he didn't either. He got out. He went home, and he got, got out the books, and in an old book that his dad had, his dad was a vet before him, there was a thing that said lack of niacin will cause these symptoms and and one of the things that breaks down the niacin in a horse's system is bracken fern. Hmm. He said, do you have bracken fern in your pastures? I said, I'm sure I must because I've got everything else out there. And, uh, Apparently I do. And the, 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 the well, he, uh, he said, well, he said, there's a possibility that that's, that's what it is. And my pastures were short. It was a, one of those dry years where you're supplementing with a little hay and, and just Wanting to get through till the rain, till it rains, and uh, he came up and he jugged her. I had her where I could get her out, thinking she's going to die that night. I mean, she was really in bad shape. Mm-hmm. And two days later, she was back in the string. It was a niacin. That's so you can file that away. I'll file. I, I have been since you've said that. I've been filing that away. Yeah, cool. file that away, and, and it had it had all the signs of of encephalitis. The you know the. The gnashing of the teeth and the, and a blinking of the eye. The bright lights bothered her, and then she was staggering all over the place and just had a lot of, yeah. Oh, all kinds of things happened. You know, I've had a racehorse that I saw, a two-year-old. It was it was in the process of dying. Of course, we all go over and see what, what's going on in everybody else's barn, and nobody knew what it was. And I said, I've seen that before. And it was uh, internal hemorrhaging. Which you used to see, you used to see long time ago. Used to see that frequently if you had a lot of horses from uh, Strongyles. That that's the worst of all the worms is that Strongyle, that bloodworm. They weaken the walls, causes aneurysms. They rupture and they and the horse will hemorrhage to death. And before they came up with phenothiazine, that was something that we had to deal with. I mean, we would we would lose seven eight horses a year with it. Wow. You get a big herd like that, and you've got some pastures, and they're reinfesting all the time. And there was nothing to combat it. Sure. When phenothiazine came out, that was a that was a lifesaver. Yeah, big deal. Oh, it was. We we would get we had a big barrel of molasses, and we'd clean all the mangers out. And this is a difficult process. So we would have the uh, molasses, and the other one following up with a level tablespoon of phenothiazine on top of it. We did that for three weeks. Yeah. And then we'd quit for 10 and do it again. Wow. I mean, that took two people. That take a lot of time, all that number of horses. That really did the trick. Hmm. It was then now, now worms aren't a problem if you worm them. Right. Worms aren't a big problem anymore. <laughs> if you worm them and do it a lot. Look at your pastures and horses that are on grass, not short pastures. They'll reinfest and just you worm them today and they're picking them up tomorrow. Right. 
And they're doing. We're doing a lot better now with fecal egg counts, and people are starting to take care of that and to actually checking and seeing what's what's going on, rather than just kind of blindly throwing some armor out there. You know, some of them. Yeah, exactly right. So you started to say earlier about you and uh, my grandpa going down to the Boot Hill of Missouri yeah. to inspect some cattle. Yeah, and I cut you off. Tell us, tell us how that story. Oh went. well, now we're in a jeep and we're going through the pastures and looking at my all my old cows, mm-hmm. and I'm talking away. And, of course, we do have a little bit of grain in there. You don't go anywhere around them without. And this one cow was my pet cow, the one that sold the most cattle for me because you, you could take a total stranger up to her. You could milk her out in the field. You could <laughs> There was 250. She was my pet cow in the very first group of, of heifers that I got. And uh, she just loved to be petted and fed. And, and she heard my voice, and she took off after that Jeep just running as fast as she could. And the guy that was driving, finally Jesse said, you better stop. She's going to just be that utter black and blue. And <laughs> so she, he did, and I went out with my little bucket of grain, and I gave her some grain. She was happy to eat that and petted her a little bit. But cows cows have personality, just like horses do. So, you know, it's it's been real great getting to visit with you at times as we've both been adults. Of course, my grandpa has been gone for a while, and, and it's always great to uh, uh, visit with uh, f- people that grandma and grandpa knew whenever they were younger. And, and Oh, your grandmother was in a whole <laughs> – she was in a special place. Yeah. She was really something. She never knew how many people were coming for lunch, never. <laughs> That's yeah. about right. Huh? That's right, yeah. And she had these – she had these meals on hand at any time. She could throw together this marvelous meal. Yeah. And you'd be sitting there at this marvelous table. And Jesse said, everything on this table except the salt and pepper was raised right here on this bar. Yeah. <laughs> you <know>? yeah. <laughs> and the sugar. Right. Yeah. yeah, pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. Pretty close. Oh, yeah. He was. Uh... But, yeah, she was as big a salesman for Forrest Brangus as he was. Oh, yeah. Rocking four Brangus. You bet. I used to tell him, I said it one time when I was young, and I said, I think that his grandma's hamburger gravy sold more bulls than his speeches ever did. Oh, I think so. <laughs> oh, you bet. I tell you, when you came in that house, why, she she was just just wonderful. She's a wonderful lady. She was really special for me. I tell you, she. I said, as long as she's alive, I'll continue to drive to Texas every year. Instead of flying, because yeah, you did that every year for quite a while. You'd spend the summers at Michigan, just a few months in the winter down here. So you'd stop into Missouri, and yeah, get to see those, see Grandma. And- yep, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to get. She was she was 20 years older than me, and I was 21 when my mother passed away. She she filled a void in my life. She was she was she was special, really special. Oh, it's been a month ago now. I guess I was back home and I drove through. Stelia. I gave a clinic down there uh, uh-huh. near a coal camp, actually, not too far away. Your mother was there. Yeah, and that's the one yeah, mom went to. Mora. It was cold. Yeah, down by Mora. Yeah. Anyway, we turned the corner there, and I, I told them that's where my grandparents went on their first date. And uh, the people that were with me were, are you serious? I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I've heard. I don't know how many times I heard that story, but that was the first time they, they went on a date right there, and he got back from the service. But, yeah, it's a really great, really great story. So, Rosalind, you've done a lot of things. You've been a lot of places. You've lived a lot of life. You got a lot of life left to live. Tell us. I uh, hope so. You hope so. I'm not too sure about that. I tell you, these 80s aren't aren't nearly as nice as the 70s, 60s, and 50s. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. Well, like Grandma always says, better than the alternative. 
tell us um, if you had a group of young people sitting over here, whether it's, you know, of course, you've, you've had your, your daughter and friends that she knew and you have people my generation that look up to you. Give us some uh, some tips that people need to know or the things you've learned that you maybe wished you would have understood a little more when you were younger. Some uh, some things to to go by, some things to live by. Yeah, you older people that have been around horses all your lives, like yourself and Martha, you know, you, you've got your own opinions about a lot of things. But I've had a dozen teenagers work for me on any given year. Now, not always the same ones. Right, right, of course. <laughs> and at times, at times, there was even one time where I, I fired the whole bunch of them. And I, all yeah, at once. Just all start at once. Fresh. I said, yeah. I just, I said, no, that's unacceptable. All the rascals, they were going out in the middle of the night taking my ponies. They could catch up the ponies and they'd go down on the beach at Lake Michigan. This stable was located about half a mile from Lake Michigan itself. And they could get down on the beach and they were running those ponies up in there. <laughs> and people call, you know, there's horses on it, not mine. Yeah, it, but it was. And uh, I said, and they all knew it. That's the thing. They knew it. And uh, so I got on the phone and I just called everybody that ever worked there. I said, I really need some help right now. And I was down one day and I had a full crew the next day, but it wasn't them. It wasn't those kids that I'd fired. Their parents had to come and talk to me about them. And, uh, and then, of course, every group has a ringleader, and you get rid of that one. But, uh, yeah, they're always different. But I've got a whole lot of them that have their own horses and, and never got over the horse bug that they had when they were teenagers. And uh, I have one bunch. I have one family that, that uh, they met working for me, Keith and Nancy. And they met, and they went through college, and they finally got married. They have four sons, and the doggone boys are getting married now, and, and I have to come because if it wasn't for me, they wouldn't be there. You know, they, they would not exist because Keith and Nancy would never have met. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> that's, this is, but as far as uh, things they should know, because I don't know about horses, uh, they learned that the hard way. There's not another way. You know. But now barns, I can tell you what. And I've told Nancy, she just got her own farm now. Mm -hmm. And she had to put your door in the middle of the stall. Don't put it on one side or the other. Yeah. <laughs> and just, it sounds like a little thing, but the people that build barns aren't the people that use them. That's, that's true. And they'll put a, put a door on the left-hand side of the stall and a feed tub on the right and a water bucket in the middle. Mm -hmm. And then they wonder why their horse doesn't want to go in because when you go in, you're against the wall. When your horse comes in, he's going to catch his hip on the, on that door when he goes in. If he doesn't, it's amazing because he's gonna. It's going to happen. That's a that's a small thing, but it's a, so important. Every everybody's had experience with a horse that doesn't want to go in their stall. Your mother's got one right now. Yeah, and uh, it's caused by that. That's what causes it. Hmm. It's a small thing. I had a racehorse that was having problems with that, and I started teaching him to lead on the other side. <laughs> and, and, of course, my trainer said, what's the matter with you? Yeah. You're on the wrong side. I said, not for this horse. I said, his door is on the wrong side. Well, I had to explain that to him, and he, it started to make sense. And pretty soon, a lot of them are training their horses to be led from both sides. They have correct from both sides so that sure. they will lead just as well from that side yeah, as the other Yeah, it makes sense. I'm always trying to help people with uh, not getting I, into too much of a habit. I think that's a small thing, but it's a very big thing. Because it'll get you run over, yeah. uh, and keep yourself let's keep yourself safe. Especially some of those big, big Clydesdales and those big Holy horses moly. like that. Yeah. Well, 
A lot of those trotters and pacers are big horses too. You got to travel a lot with some Clydesdales and some big horses like that. That's, that's gotta be a, that was a chore. Can you believe it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 11 months of the year. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. But uh, it's been a life. Been just a ton of things that have happened and things that you've seen. You've been in the right place at the right time. I saw a lady driving a horse in Toronto. I would have given my soul to be here that night. That horse was on his, he was, uh, and he was over the hill, but he had been a world champion fine harness horse, and he was again that night. I saw him. It was a, I'll never forget that. She wore a blue dress. I'll never forget it. Now, man, we're talking many, many years ago, but that horse, they, and they do things so right up there, they turn all the lights off and the spotlight comes down to keep that winner up in the corner. Mm Everybody else exits the ring, and then the spotlight comes on, and he heads for the. Well, he just never even touched the ground all the way to the gate. It was just a. Oh, you just you'd have to see it to believe it. I've never seen anything like that in my life. These horses are smart. I I thought for a long time that they were just creatures of habit, and that they they can figure things out, and they are so empathetic. They know everything that's going on around them all the time. And that's part of their basic nature that they're that way. And when they see you go to the go to the barn and you know oh, they look at you and they nicker at you and you look at them and you walk into the barn, when you come out, they're gone. Because they know you're coming out. You weren't coming out to visit with them like you should. The time Jesse Dowdy told me, the time that you spend with your stock is never wasted time. That's one of the most important things that I learned from Jesse Dowdy. Because I used to say, I just waste my time. I come out here and just watch the cows. <laughs> but with horses, it's very good to know, if you have numbers of horses, to know who's hanging out with who. And you got to be a little bit careful because their friendships are so deep with yeah. one another. Yeah. Uh, that I sold, I sold a horse and had no idea. I knew he was friends with this other horse. I knew the horse I kept. I had no idea. I, I, he had darn near died on me. He he just quit eating. He was so despondent. He was so depressed. His best friend was gone. Their relationships with other horses are just extraordinarily deep. They don't accept the uh, the loss like as well as we do, <laughs> and just and we don't accept it all that well. There's a lot of girls and a lot of women. Their horses are more like pets. They're they're not pets. They're using animals, and they really appreciate being used. Right. Having something to do, having a job. Giving something to do. That's right. But I don't know, respect for him as an animal, but respect for the intellect of that animal. He can figure out how to open that gate. Sure. <laughs> sure. When, you've, when you've chased your horses every two or three days all the way to Petwater and back, and you finally see the rascal that's opening that gate, you aren't going to break him of that. Maybe you could put a chain and a lock on it, but there's another gate. He'll figure something it's out. It's something, yeah. Time time to get rid of that horse. <laughs> He's got to go. You can't fall in love with your horse, but you do. You do. And even your racehorses, you do. When they die in your arms, it's, it's uh, heartbreaking because they do that too. I had to bury my old stallion Rex this year. You Did knew you? that. Maybe. Wow. That was uh, one of the last ones that was born uh, down at Grandpa's when Grandpa was still around. Yeah. Or, you know, born down there. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a tough it's a tough deal. It's really hard, yeah. I had a really 
my favorite horse. I mean, he was my, I still have his uh, name tag off of his harness. He got twisted gut, which which they are, uh, any horse can get that. And pay attention to him. Pay attention to the horses. And, and uh, there's a reason why they don't eat their clean up their breakfast. That should be a big because they love to eat. They'll eat themselves to death. Cows don't do that. Yeah, they will. If they're not eating, something's wrong. Something's very wrong. Take your temperature. <laughs> Have it ready. Yeah. So do you think a lot of that transfers over to the 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 people side of things? I'm not even talking about the horses, just people that aren't they don't notice their friendships as much. They don't notice their uh, looking at humans as humans, looking at people as people and sure. noticing those things instead of thinking about what they their thoughts of them or their judgments of them. I think people are thinking more of animals than they are of humans right now. They're so concerned with animal welfare. And children are are really we got a lot of hungry kids in this in this country. We really do. I mean, I don't know about everywhere, but I know in Michigan we're we're providing two to three meals a day in our school systems for kids that don't get enough to eat at home. Sure. People, there's always been poverty, and there's always been I don't know. My brother-in-law said something about. What was the word he used? I can't. I can't think about words. Words leave you when you get old. I went to school with people that the, they were only there three days a week because it, those were the days it was their turn to wear the shoes. I mean, this was in. Uh, we're talking a long time ago in a country school, and these are country people. Yeah, we've always had the haves and the have-nots, but I think people are more concerned about animals. Animal welfare and, and horses. I, uh, you say you asked a question about where I think the horse industry is going. Now that race, those standard bred races, racing, that uh, has all been a, a part of our heritage. Everybody got around with horses and buggies. Everybody. That's how we got to town, and and that's all that's left of it is, is the racing industry for those horses. And it's a good one. It's it's a family. A lot of it's family, just like I work for a family. Uh, multi-generations stay in that. I don't know about saddle horse people. I don't see where they're going with the uh, – got to follow the money. It's all about the money. Money corrupts. It just does. And, and uh, the money and the quarter horse – I disappointed in the quarter horse people when they found out they got it down to one horse as the reason for – what is it, the double muscling? HYPP. Yes. They could have done just what the Angus people did with their dwarfism. Gone. No such thing as any animal registered to that's got that name in their pedigree. It's gone. Sure, it'd be costly. Uh, they might have to dig into their coffers a little bit and reimburse some people. But that's what they should have done. And they didn't. And it's still in existence today. And not getting better. Because they... They actually fostered it. They made those horses with that, and they are yeah, not exactly double muscled, but they're so muscled that they're causing seizures and problems. Duh, Hyper, it's hyperkalemic periodic paralysis. Yeah, HYPP. Yeah, and and uh, they they're causing all of that, and and it does it's unnecessary. So I I personally lost all respect for the quarter horse people, and then I thought they were so darn smart to take their rejects and make another breed out of them. Right. And that, that other breed is is <laughs> more popular right. than than where it came from. 
the Paint Horse Association is, is getting uh, bigger. It's getting bigger, but it probably there's that same bloodline is in there. That genetics is still there. It's in that breed too, but maybe they can have the gumption to do something about it. Yeah, I it don't is, know. It is tough. The show horse industry today just keeps promoting and producing animals that are that are not really able to hold themselves together, not really able to keep themselves sound and take care of themselves. And they're doing it all for, for fads, a lot of it, and for specific uh, ideas that some human had about let's make a horse as big as we can make it with the smallest feet and the smallest head and all these things that are just kind of... Non-functioning. Non-functioning. Yeah, that big horse isn't going to be able to do anything on those little feet. It, it, there's no balance in the breed anymore. And And I saw that he was working a horse, and I thought, well, I wouldn't be caught dead on that horse. That horse dragging his nose along the ground, and they thought that was a great thing. I mean, that's I want a horse that that is looking at things like I am, that is seeing this world, that wants to know where he's going. And, and I want a horse with a brain in his head. These horses have been abused to me. That's abuse. Yeah, a lot of them have been. It's a tough industry for, for the horses. People, uh, people do way too much. Uh, Putting the, doing the, what they want the horse to do rather than just letting the horse be a horse. And I see them doing their, you know, I watch it on TV. I'm always looking for you there. I'm so glad you're not, uh, I'm going to quit looking for you now. But uh, there's nobody else watching. There's nobody in the stands. What's supporting this? A lot of the big shows that happen, there'll be people watching, but so much of it is the only people that are there are the people that are showing and their families. That's it. You know. It's it's not really a spectator event too much, you know. Well, it should be. Yeah. But you know, when you see when you see them coming out, I like hunters, like I like to see hunters and jumpers. But jumpers are better than hunters because the hunters aren't challenged enough. You know, it's, I think the, it's a four six. Is is it? Any horse can jump four six. Any of them, and then it's all done on form, and it's judged by a judge. And unless they trip and fall, you know, it's. It's any you know anybody could win it you know but uh, so I like to see the jumping horses because it's exciting and that's done one at a time but those one at a time things they're boring it's like football football's boring now you're gonna say why is football boring everybody watches that how long is a football play five seconds mm-hmm. they can run from one end of the field to the other in under ten seconds if they can't they can't play so then what do you see. You'll see them staggering up and walking over into the huddle. And on TV, they'll show that play again and again and again. It's boring. Why are these people watching that? I don't understand it. I'd rather watch rugby. Right. Nonstop. Nonstop action. You bet. I don't know why that isn't popular here. I'm opinionated, aren't I? Oh, hey, we all are. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) No, I didn't get you on here to tell you my opinion. I wanted to get yours, so that's, that's great. But thank you very much for uh, sitting down and visiting with us. been my pleasure. If there's a last word, it's that I'm really glad you're doing what you're doing because you're out to help horses and you're out to educate the people that own them. And, and that's really necessary because so many people don't. Uh, they don't know that animal. They don't really know how to get that, the best out of him. And he, he loves to get saddled up and go for a ride. He really does. He loves to go on new territories, even our standard breads like that. They like going on to what they call the back track because it's a new way. It's not the real track. The real track is work. The back track is fun. 
and they like to have fun. Horses love to have fun, and uh, well, I appreciate that. They're fun loving. I, I yeah. I hope uh, I hope you do really well with this. I hope you spend more time in the United States. Yeah. I know you you want to go and travel the world, but. There's a lot of people right here that really need, they need you. Well, I appreciate that, and I'll keep doing what I'm doing, thanks to you and my grandparents and my parents and people that came before me to help uh, move the way out. So Yeah, you're standing on fairly broad shoulders, I think. You bet. Okay, thanks, Rosalind. Thank you, Cal. If you're enjoying the Horses in Life podcast, there are many ways you can support it. You can obviously tell people about it. You can tell your friends about it. You can share it through social media or any other means. You can go to patreon.com and support it financially. There's a little more information on my website about the podcast. Also on my website, calmiddleton.com. Please be sure you sign up for my monthly newsletters through my email subscription list. Until next time, enjoy each day. Enjoy each day.